This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. It's a perennial complaint and a topic that has surfaced often on this podcast. Why is it so hard to find talented craftspeople to work on projects? Upholsterers, wallpaper hangers, painters, furniture restorers, the list goes on and on. And when designers do find the talents they need to execute their visions, they're usually so fully booked that the wait times can seem forever. But how does it feel on the other side of the equation? What is it like for in-demand craftspeople? How do they learn their skills? And how can they find and train the staff they need to carry on their businesses? How do they cope with the pressures of success and stay afloat during the inevitable slowdowns? I have with me today three talented and successful artisans to give us an inside view and to give us their ideas about how designers and the culture at large can help to sustain and expand the ranks of skilled workers that designers so desperately need. Since 1988, New Jersey-based artisan Chris Pearson has created painted floors for numerous designers, including Miles Red, David Netto, and Gideon Mendelssohn. He is adept at crafting looks from faux marquetry and faux stone to simple checkerboards and elaborate cartouches, and his work has been featured in Architectural Digest, El Decor, Veranda, and World of Interiors. Hello, Chris. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Decorative painter Caroline Lizarraga trained in Florence and in 2000 opened her studio in San Francisco. Since then, she has created stunning walls, floors, and ceilings for restaurants, hotels, show houses, and private residences. In addition to paint, she uses board resin, silver leaf, and tea stained papers to conjure clouds, malachite, tortoiseshell, and numerous other specialty finishes, as well as her own innovative designs. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Upholsterer to the stars, Luther Quintana opened his atelier in 1987 to create custom draperies and a wide range of furniture pieces, with everything made by hand from the wood frame to the application of the last bit of fringe. His family-focused firm is a favorite resource for designers including Amanda Nisbet, Jeffrey Bill Huber, and Nick Olson, among many others. Hello, Luther. Hi, Michael. So I want to get started by getting a little of your background for each of you because the three of you have amazing very specialized skills. And I'm always fascinated as someone who has no talent with a brush and totally all thumbs and can barely hammer in a nail. I'd love to get a sense of how you got into this very specialized field that each of you excels at. So why don't we start with you, Caroline? I actually have a background in fashion and was quite obsessed, though, with furniture very early on. And my first piece, I would go to flea markets and garage sales, buy a piece for $20, and I just had a vision of what it should look like. And at 18, I bought a piece for $20, and a designer offered me $1,200 for it. And I thought, huh. <laughs> well. And that was the beginning of the light bulb coming on. So I moved to Italy where I studied, and you know, I was very lucky. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head is finding a niche within the arts 
And I just found my place very quickly. Like it is my passion, which I think can be hard when you have your job is your passion. So you're just constantly working because you feel like you're not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. So then you do too much work. I know. Exactly. It's true. It's true. So that's how I got started. Right. And Chris, what about you? Well, this is about all I've ever done other than working at a deli when I was 18 and 19. I was a poet. I went to the University of Chicago. And when I was there, there was a job at the ad board there, you know, when if a college kid needs a job. And I worked for a an Argentinian couple as a an assistant doing decorative painting, and I never looked back. I moved but you to had York. no formal training in it. Well, I've always been kind of artsy. But I, like I say, I wasn't trained in this in any way. Mm-hmm. And it, like I think that we're on to something when we talk about how specified it is. And now just specific, you know, what I'm interested in is a mix of the math of it and the history of it. And just over the years, you kind of find how it all comes together and what makes it you. And it's almost more of a lifestyle than it is a job, it seems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're artists in a way. Like, you know, artists live and work all the time. And that's essentially what you do. But of course, you're collaborating with other people as opposed to a, an artist alone in his or her studio working. So that's a little bit different. But Luther, how about you? How did you get into your, which is so successful and is, you're so sought after now, How did you get into doing upholstery and draperies? Sure. So my father started this upholstery business in 1987. I was born a couple years after. And we've, along with my sister, have been working in the family business. I mean, from a very long time, from when we were kids. I remember. So it's in your genes. It's in my genes, yes. (laughs) So my father came to this country and started his firm and through hard work. He kind of integrated my sister and myself into the business. And How old were you when you started going to the studio or the atelier? So actually, in my senior year of high school, I had done so many credits. So I was like just leaving before 12. So I would just go straight to the shop. And then from there, I would start to buy the materials and respond to clients' questions and things like that. But it really wasn't until my freshman year of college when the great recession hit that my father was like luther i really need you to help me sew and strip some furniture because i don't have that many employees and i i can't pay the overtime so it was free labor from 2008 and then (laughs) from child labor i like it it was free labor (laughs) right but we never we never looked back i helped them deliver furniture and strip furniture and do all sorts of things and then after that you know there was a couple of setbacks here and there but we haven't looked back since so that was 12 13 14 years ago that's great so i want to get a sense of how how each of you operates like Caroline, do designers come to you? Do you advertise your services? How do you keep a steady stream of work? Because, I mean, I know during the pandemic, designers were crazy, and I'm sure you were very busy. Now it seems like there's a little bit of a slowdown, which we'll get into a little bit. But so how does it generally work? Do you have designers coming to you? Do you hear about projects? No, I mean, I have to say, like, it's overwhelming. I mean, I've never advertised in my life, and... It's all been through word of mouth and we've been incredibly lucky and I think it's a combination of lucky and working hard and also 
building connections and relationships. I'm, I'm really not interested in just coming and doing one powder room for a designer. I want to be part of the family, part of the team. I want to be in the meetings with the architectural designers, on, yeah. designing the finishes, which is what we, what I get to do. Mm-hmm. And so where we're at now is just, you know, which is the, the theme of the podcast really is how do you keep up? Because now we're wanted in States and, other countries and just constantly moving and how do you keep the high level of work that you're used to producing in other places and how big is your team now so i have a team of between six to eight women and for me i don't have a it's hard to manage all of that i would say i don't know about luther and chris but you got into this as, as a passion and you get deeper and deeper into it and it gets bigger than you imagined. And I don't want to be a manager. I yeah. want to paint. I want yeah. to be part of that. And so I do turn down work that isn't, I, I wouldn't say I turn it down. I put it to the right person. Mm-hmm. So I say, you know, we don't do that anymore, but here's a person who does. And I really want to keep that connection going strong, you know, and now I I will say like, Chris, you'll be getting a lot of our floor jobs because I'm like, oh, (laughs) perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how it works. Also, it's like, you know, if you don't feel it's going to be a creative challenge, then you're more likely to want to pass it on to someone else. Yeah, why would you... not that yeah, you're getting the uncreative projects. That's no, all what I, I'll I mean. I'll give Chris. you the creative, Chris. But <laughs> no, no, I, I'll pass them comes, on to another floor painter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But if someone comes to us and says, oh, we want to do 20,000 square feet of white plaster, you know, that's really beautiful. That's not really what we do right, anymore. Right. And maybe 10 years ago, I would have said yes. Right. But now I'm very specialized. We really are doing fine art on the walls. Right. And I say, you know what? That's- Call this person is an amazing person. I vet them and let's all work together. We're not in competition. We're all working together. Right. And Chris, is it much the same for you in terms of designers coming to you? And Yeah, pretty much. I mean, unlike the other two, I do all the work myself. You're a one-man band. I'm a one-man band. My teenage son helps me now and then with the drawing. Free labor. No, actually, I overpay him. Um, (laughs) But if I'm going to be giving him that much money, I might as well get something out of it. And unlike Luther's family, I'm not convinced that that this trade runs in ours, but he's good company and we get along with each other. But I really do everything myself. We're just talking maybe 12, 15 floors a year and the year is done. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Miles Red. Every year he's good for four of them or five and they're great projects. So it... um, you know, I, I I try and be fair to people. I, I have a number of designers I've worked with for many years, and we have a relationship, and they'll call me, and they'll, they'll refer me. You know, it's grown a lot in the past few years. I don't think right. things were really like this for me five years ago even. I mean, a lot of it is just social media too, um, Instagram and all that. And I've right. met some great clients from Instagram. I'm going to right. um, South Haven, Michigan to paint these three really cool floors there right on the lake for a woman that just found me there. And, you know, you never know when somebody finds you if, if they're for real or if it's a job that you want to do, but it was a perfect right. match. And right. it all adds up pretty quickly for me. Right. Well, I think that's an interesting point. Now that your work is being seen so much more, I'll just, you know, 
everybody's work on Instagram, a wider audience are realizing, oh, this is something I could have, or this is something I want in my home. So that leads to more demand. Have you thought about expanding, Chris, and training someone? Because it's like Carolyn said, it's not so fun to be a manager. You don't want to do HR, but, but you know, designers have the same problem. They get into it because they want to design spaces. They don't want to have to do payroll and management and all the stuff that comes along with it. So are you, are you deliberately staying as a one-man band or is it just it, that you've... It's, it's, it's been a fit for me. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. what I do is it seems so specialized. I'm not sure I could really train anyone mm-hmm. to do exactly what I do. I mean, I've met people along the way who I think are wonderful and I'll refer mm-hmm. projects to them and we'll kind Kind of collaborate a little bit sometimes, but I, I'm not sure if I could, you know, I mean, what interests me a lot about it actually is all the people I meet and I meet lots mm-hmm. of people who are writing on Instagram and they p- can't afford my work. But I love the dialogue with them of trying to help them, maybe if they can do it themselves. I've done so many FaceTimes with people Mm -hmm. to try and, you know, you can do this. This is how it's done. And I'll just sort of explain the steps to them. You know, like I feel very lucky to be a part of this design world and sort of a voice for the painted floor industry or the painted floor business or whatever it is. And as much as I can just help people get what they want done, if I can't do it myself, you know, I love doing that. I think you need to write a book. It will save you a lot of FaceTime, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, on my website, I have a section of drawings and designs there. And Mm -hmm. it's, there are probably 200 different, I mean, I I think it's a pretty good resource for people. And I'll often send them there. That's great. Luther, yours is a family run business, really, family-centered focus. It's not only family. I don't mean to imply that. How big is your team now, and, and how does it operate? So we're almost 50 people, wow. and we are split between our big factory here in the middle of Long Island, Deer Park, and we have a showroom in Hell's Kitchen, the neighborhood in, in the city that's mm-hmm. close to the Intrepid, and we have a small shop in Brooklyn. Between my father and myself, we switch around and triangulate the three locations throughout the week. My sister is based in Brooklyn, where she handles, she's the CFO. So, yeah, there's um, about eight people in a carpentry shop. We have double that in upholsters, and we have about six people in the city. And basically, it's my father and I delegate the work to some foremen or managers. And then it trickles down. But we oversee everything mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> right. I'm sure. The more people you have working for you, the more you have to oversee. I mean, the more oversee. And yeah. right. Caroline made a great point earlier about wanting to do less managerial work and less paperwork and estimates and do the art, which is something that's very true in my case as well. I find myself making more estimates than I could type up in a day or in a week. I do get some feedback from clients saying, where's my estimate? Where's my estimate? Where's my estimate? But yeah, we keep the machine going that way. We make a lot of estimates. We get a lot of work, thankfully. And COVID actually provided us with a boost that also Chris alluded to with the Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, Between 2020 and present day, our Instagram has probably grown three or fourfold. And thanks to the vibrant design community they keep tagging us and we keep reposting and it's a beautiful mutually beneficial relationship where we display their work and they display our work what percentage of your business is from designer as opposed to because you also have people i could walk into your showroom and say i'd like this 
sofa, but in this fabric, right? Is that how it works? Yes. I would say about 90% is to the trade. Mm-hmm. And that 10% is slowly diminishing <laughs> right, to right. almost zero because uh, we just get so much work from designers that they know the business, they know the procedures, and there's less of a hand-holding process. Right. Right, exactly. The designer knows what you're capable of and understands your process much more. And which brings another question I'd love to ask each of you. And Carolyn, maybe we'll start with you. How do you feel? Because I know some designers love to share their sources, their resources. They'll say, oh, this is an upholstery. I know other designers who said you'd have to kill me to get it out of me. So does it matter to you? Do you prefer when your name is out there? I mean, if you're working at capacity, I guess it doesn't really matter. But it is a bit of an argument within the design community. Should you share your resources or not? I mean, I think it's almost inevitable in this day and age, though, because everything is on social media, you know. And if I tag, if I put something on Instagram and I don't tag X Y Z, somebody is going to come after you pretty quickly, right? To right. to acknowledge that. But I mean, I think it, it goes both ways. In general, for me, most of the designers want to tag us because we do have a lot of social media presence and we're in a lot of magazines and things like mm-hmm. that. So it's to I think put the project a little bit more at the top, you know, but I do have, I mean, I'm sure all of us here sign at least four NDAs a week. Mm-hmm. So I, you, <laughs> when you're seeing our projects, you're only seeing maybe half of our projects. I mean, I wish I could show you some of the other ones, but right. I can't. Yeah. Right. And the thing I, I have a battle with that about is, for example, we had a project that I worked on for a solid year And that's a lot of painting. That's like getting a PhD in a way. And I want to share that because we, it's quite a journey and it's something we're proud of. And that's what I think is hard when you can't show this amazing thing that you did and you're so proud of it. And so many people played a role in it. It's not just about me. It's about the design team, all of that. And I think that is hard sometimes to accept and it happens all the time you know it's been happening for years yeah and it's usually the best projects because no as a former magazine editor i can tell you it was like so many designers say i can't show you my best project it's you know it's as a and but that's part of the design world too that i guess we just have to accept you have to accept it what it is yeah frustrating but certainly it's frustrating the designers are so frustrated by it too yeah yes sometimes they'll let them do it in a book as opposed to a magazine sometimes not at all yeah So sometimes they'll come to me and go, can you secretly post it? Because you may not be under NDA. I don't want to get involved. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't want to be in this. No, I know. Those people, they have plenty of lawyers. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I want to ask each of you how, maybe this doesn't apply to you, Chris, because you're a one-man band. But how do you? Yeah, Yeah, and I've never signed an NDA, by the way. Oh, interesting. But but I have had this experience and I worked on a very important, I mean, I think like one of my masterpieces and I was clueless. I put it, I finished it. I put a picture up and ding, 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 all these, I've got hundreds of likes on there. And right away it was like 10 at night, maybe 11 at night, the designer's assistant called me and said, you got to pull that. Yeah. And Mm. it, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was a really, really good floor. Mm -hmm. But I've had others, too, that'll work with you. Just don't just wait until it's been published. Something's to be published in a year. Just don't show it till then. You know, it's I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I won't take on a project if we have to sign an NDA because oh, wow. I, I'm a blabbermouth. Yeah, you I'm too. gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's yeah. gonna know sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it's marketing for your businesses. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, this is a big topic. As I said, it's, it's the intro. It's come up many times on the podcast. Designers are frustrated that there's not enough talented people like you out there. And I'd love to get a sense of how you feel that we could start to rectify that in our culture. I mean, sadly, in this country. We all believe that everyone needs to go to college. Everyone needs to learn. You know, and college, listen, I love college. Don't get me wrong, and I'm so happy I went to college. But it's not right for everyone. Mm -hmm. And these kids come out with huge student debt now, which I didn't have to deal with, thank God. Back then, it wasn't so expensive to go to college. But, you know, they don't have any skills. They can't get jobs. You know, and it's like we all know plumbers and electricians who are living wonderful lives and are yeah. valued and respected, but our larger culture doesn't seem to value the skills of people who work with their hands, whether it's as an artisan or as an electrician or a plumber. You know, so how do you see that changing? What do you do? How do you find talent yourself? Like, Luther, how do you hire? So... It's a great question because sometimes you just have to look for alternatives. When we started in Deer Park, we only had three or four guys and girls working here. And it took me to go to a car wash and get my car wash and see the one kid that was working the hardest and the most diligent. And I said, you know what? Do you want to work here? Or I can offer you something that is possibly can be a lifelong career and you could make some money and you can learn and solve problems and have way more fun. And you know what? That kid still works here today. Wow, you know, he's, that's yeah, cool. that was eight years ago. Um, wow. another hire that is still here as she's very special. She worked, uh, next door because Deer Park used to be like a big flower distribution. I didn't know that. There's a lot of Dutch settlers. So this goes way back. And, you know, she was working hard fixing the little flowers. And I said, do you have any like sewing experience? She goes, yeah. In Honduras, I used to sew a little bit. So I said, you know what? Why don't you come on over? And she's been <laughs> here since. She makes my cushions. She does the cushion inserts. And same thing with carpenters. Sometimes you just need a, a guy that you see is really hustling, bustling, not, no referral, no prior experience. And when they show interest in problem solving, that's a huge plus. And they run with it. Hi, everybody. And thanks for listening to the Cherish podcast. I'm Anna Brockway, president and co-founder of Cherish. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some really exciting news. Cherish is launching our first ever in-person pop-up, the Cherish Art Gallery at none other than the famed Bergdorf Goodman. Open now through April, our gallery showcases 300 gorgeous pieces by our most beloved artists. If you find yourself in New York, I do hope you'll drop by. It's fantastic. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. Cherish.com. And now back to the show. And Caroline, what about you? I think for us, I've been incredibly lucky. Like I was a lone wolf like Chris as well for many years. And this woman came to me one day and said, I want to work for you. And I, my response was, oh, I'm a lone wolf. I don't work with other people. And she said, I will work for free. And I thought, oh, my gosh, okay. <laughs> and then I, I 
started with her and it, it, it kind of grew from there. So I consider the women who work with me, we're like a family. For me, when I'm looking for somebody, and that's the thing I would also want to say to this question about a lack of craftsmen and artisans, we're, we're a group. So if someone says to me, oh, Caroline, do you do straw marquetry, for example? No, I don't, but I know the four people in the world who do it really beautifully. So as a designer, if you can tap into one craft, you can usually find the other crafts you are looking for. And so for me, a lot of our people have contacted me and said, I wanna work for you. And I will test them and I will know in two seconds mm -hmm. if it's gonna work. It's about hard work, as Luther is saying, a really positive attitude and a level of gratefulness. Like we are so lucky. We are traveling the world, seeing the most beautiful homes, working on the most beautiful palettes. And I'm not sitting at a computer all day. And I want that energy on our project. It's a big gift to be asked to do that. So I have a lot of designers, their children come to me, contractors' children, things like that. But it is a little worrisome. I, I know this is an exaggeration, but like you're saying, all the four people who do straw marketry, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure right. there's not many. So no. do you think that it's something that, I mean, I sort of joke, but I'm kind of serious, like, does, do designers need to organize to encourage, like, should things be taught in community college? Or, I mean, I remember when I was in, I'm old enough that when I was in junior high, I had shop class. Now, let me yeah. tell you, my little bookcase that I made was totally rickety and rocked. It wasn't level. <laughs> you know, I was not good at shop class. But I thought it was such a valuable thing to learn and to see about, you know, to see people doing it, who and you saw people who were good at it, other kids. And I think that we don't, we, we don't, don't encourage we, I, that. I agree with you. I think there's such a stigma. And you, you started this conversation earlier on saying, like, if you have a child who's going to college and you say, oh, my son and daughter is getting a business education or my son or daughter is going to electrical school. There's a or different apprenticing stigma. with somebody. Right. Or, yeah. And I think we need to get past yeah. that, what you said, and also like hone in on the craft. When you go to art school, let's say, how amazing would it be if there was like a straw marquetry or there was like a floor a department or things like that? There needs to be a trade school, not just the art school. I mean, I took upholstery class, Luther, and I have to say... I have so much respect for your trade after <laughs> two so days. <laughs> it is oh, so hard. My hands were bleeding and I was like, I can do this. I'm a decorative painter. And I was like, I will pay my upholster whatever I need to pay right. him. Oh, this yeah, is the, an amazing trade, you know? The Just the springing process, you oh. could just tell by the calluses on their yeah. hands that they're, oh. they spring yeah. and they're you know not necessarily yeah. doing upholster. Yeah. And Caroline makes a good point. I think that trade school, we train all our employees. Like, like I said, we look alternatively, if there is an established upholster that wants to join our team, we vet them out and they gel with the f our culture, then great. But a lot of the people we have, the list goes on. My dad's first employee swept floors at another upholstery shop was not an upholster. Another employee stocked shelves at a supermarket. I mean, it's just finding the, the right people and the culture that goes with it. Now, I think a little joking aside, but I think any interior designer who works for 
a congressperson or a senator should lobby. Like we should have yeah. like these types of trade schools or something like that, because really there is no place where we could source upholsters or carpenters for frames. I mean, a lot of guys and women will do cabinets, which is great. And that's a another whole different beast. But frames for furniture is very hard to find. It's all people that we've uh, trained from from scratch. Right. I also think there's like a glorification in this country. Like we, for example, I'm going to take chefs. I mean, 10 years ago, chefs were not stars, right? That's and then true. You, you started the Food Network and, and all of a sudden these schools, these chef schools, are these kids are paying tons of money to become a chef. And it's a really cool looked up to profession now wasn't always that way and i think if i i mean i definitely wouldn't want to be on any kind of reality show of some sort but if there were real artisans of beverly hills (laughs) exactly if there was a bit of a glorification to change the mentality of all of these different trades and to be proud and to see like, you know, you're saying electricians and plumbers. I mean, they're the most successful people in the room half of the Mm -hmm. time. They're the ones like we're doing their 10,000 square foot house half the time, you know? (laughs) Right. But that's not a known thing. So. I I also do believe that Again, promoting yourself on Instagram is very important and highlighting the work that it takes to make right. those, you know, beautiful sofas or decorative wallpaper. People love a process story mm-hmm. or a reel or whatever. Yeah. TikTok, they love to see the process. So I think that's Absolutely. really very helpful. And I guess that will help get younger people more interested in it. But it, to me, it's a little frustrating that there isn't a more... You know, like electricians have a union, plumbers have a union. Right. The design industry is very amorphous. And so how we get people, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I think there's something that we need to start thinking about. Now, one of the other reasons I think that maybe people don't think to go into the artisan field is they think it's, it's not going to pay. You know, eventually mm-hmm. the, there's busy times and there's not busy times. And, you know, during pandemic was very, very busy. Um, but like you were saying, 2008, Luther, your dad was like freaking out. So oh, yeah. how, how do you, do you think there is a way that, you can make what you do sort of a steadier thing or a more sure thing in terms of income. I guess it's, I don't know what the answer to that would be, but. Yeah, I think, again, very thankful. Unfortunately for, for many folks, COVID was, was tragic and terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the upholstery business and for just the home furnishing, I think it was an unprecedented boom that none of us thought would happen. I mean, I I remember typing alone in my room, some estimates for, Next to nothing, thinking, oh, my God, we're not going to have work for the next whatever time. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, we're every year since 2020, I've had to take a pause of of just estimating because we book up earlier and earlier every year. I'm almost at that point now. And I think what my father always says, too, is just focus on the quality. You know what I mean? Like you can try to be a salesman all you want and promote. But if one sofa goes wrong. People are going to hear about it and you're only as good as the last piece. So I always keep that in mind. And luckily, we have such great relationships with our designers that I call them almost too much uh, or text them like, are you sure this is good? Can we do this with a blind seam as opposed to welting? The fabric is too thick or can we use it real? You know, the fabric one way or another. And I think that's what we focus on is on the quality. And because of that, as Caroline had said also before, 
it's all word of mouth. So all yeah. the designers we we get are oh I I worked with so and so or I went to school with so and so or I know so and so and they highly recommend you and and that's the best form of advertising. But I think we're all incredibly busy in regards to what you're saying, Michael. I I don't think there's never a lull. If anything, we're we're all turning down work. So mm. I don't think that is the issue. There's always steady work. Even in the recession, I always had so much work. And because I also do commercial, we do residential, right. Right. we we do art panels sometimes, we do glass, we do resin. So I think also like if you're going to be an artist, diversify. Because if Luther mm -hmm. only did a one type of chair, it would be really hard to make a living. But you right. do Absolutely. all these varieties. And so be multifaceted in, in a way. I mean, Chris is lucky. He's really focused and honed in on the floors. But there's always money in this country and other countries as well. There always will be work, I think, you know, if you do your craft to the most amazing potential. Well, I, was, I mean, for me, the issue is, I mean, the smaller jobs, larger jobs, jobs that, that are more interesting, you know, where we want to go with this, you know. I mean, just as, we, as, as I get older, I'm, I'm much more, I mean, I could work more than I want to, but I, I just try and be very thoughtful about the sort of jobs that I do. If, if anything is, is very interesting to me, that's the one that draws right. me in more than anything else. And, you know, it's I, I'm less interested in smaller projects now, certainly, than I was before. Um, but if there's something to it, you know, that, that's the one I'm going to want. Well, if it's with. working with somebody you like or excites you or a new challenge, that's something you would definitely take into consideration, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Luther and I are going to start working for Chris after this. <laughs> <laughs> Lone wolf no more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'd like to ask each of you, what would be the one bit of advice you would say to a designer? Now, not the designers you work with who know you and you, but what would you, somebody who's starting out as a designer and maybe they don't have the resources that they would like to get, like you guys, and you guys are also busy, so you're not going to necessarily sign them up to work with them. But what would be your advice to work locally, to try and find people locally? What would you recommend, Luther? Absolutely. I think if you can find an upholster locally and be very communicative, because sometimes a lot of the upholstery shops now are run by maybe first generation or people who aren't native speakers, and it might be a little difficult to communicate with them. But if you show up and explain to them exactly what you want and bring pictures and as many details as possible, I'm sure that a good upholster will speak, may not speak the best English, but can speak furniture and that will help you achieve your goal. I think that's very important. I think meeting early on, as Caroline and Chris had alluded to earlier, is very important. You don't want to have a deposit sent and just wait a couple of weeks. I think it's just very important, especially if you're working with a local upholsterer, to meet as soon as that deposit is sent. You know, just say, look, are we on the same page? Because oftentimes, again, that upholsterer, now, we're in the unique position that we have a carpenter shop and an upholstery shop, so I'm not beholden to a carpenter, but a lot of the shops are. And sometimes that carpenter is very busy, and they might wait two or three weeks for a frame. And if there's a mistake made, well, guess what? 
it's going back and it's right. going to take another two or three weeks. And then now you're a month or two wasted and then putting unnecessary pressure on an upholster or yourself to finish all the fine details. Yeah, I mean, also Instagram is a great resource. The Internet is a great resource. I'm sure there has to be an upholster about an hour at least away. I know it's not easy. Um, I know mm. sometimes my customers are reluctant to come to Deer Park and we're not that far from the city. Right. But right. it happens. But photos, texts, open lines of communication, I would definitely be passionate for furniture is, is what I would recommend for the designers. And Carolyn, let's say there's a designer, you know, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, who sees your work and loves it, but you, you know, you don't have time to go to Sheboygan. What would you recommend to that designer? So like I said, initially, there's a small group of us that are, that are all connected. And so if somebody, and I've done this many times before, I'll send a message out to a group of people. I'm like, hey, do you know anybody in this town? And then I will source that person for oh, that designer. I, I'm happy to do it. I mean, I will be honest and say, look, I've never worked with this person, but right. it comes highly recommended from right. this person or that person. But I think you have to do diligence, like mm -hmm. as a designer. Look, my studio is in San Francisco. Most artists cannot afford to live in San Francisco. They're going to live in surrounding areas. Right. And it's your job to figure out where they live, right? So the, maybe they're in Oakland, maybe they're in Vallejo, things like that. They're there and you have to find them. So I would say tap into somebody you know in the art community and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Have you ever heard of that person? And most people in the art world, we're just, we want to support one another. You know, we made a decision to follow our hearts in this world and we, we will do our best to get you suited with the right person, you know, but I also think like Etsy is a great site. Like, mm -hmm. you know, one night I was on Etsy, which I, I call like dangerous late night Etsy shopping. <laughs> and I saw this incredible piece of ceramics and I looked and the woman lives 30 minutes from my studio, sent her a private message. I said, I need to see her work. I went there. She is on every single one of our projects now doing 3D ceramics over our work. She's very sought after now. She literally is like, Caroline, my career changed overnight from what happened because I want her to be successful too. So find those sources, ask different people. It's around, but it's not going to be an artist is not going to have a studio at the design center because they can't afford it. Right. And they're probably not marketing their work as effectively exactly. as they could because they'd rather be painting or Exactly. Doing. And, and you know, a lot of them don't. It's a different type of person. So you just have to find your way into that world. But I work all the time with designers who say to me, like, okay, we're thinking of doing this. Do you know anybody? And I will take the time to try to figure it out for them. I think we all can say that here. We're very supportive of that community. Well, Chris, I was so interested in what you said about on your website, you know, you put up these designs to help guide people. And I mean, I'm serious. I think you probably should do a book. I'm hopefully one of the Thank you. publishers. <laughs> because I, you know, I'm listening to the three of you, I'm thinking, boy, I want to take a course with all of you as guys as the professors. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to learn that kind of thing. I remember years ago, I was taking my niece around to look at colleges and we went to Purchase, which is a very artsy school. And I thought, I want to take bookbinding. You know, it was like so totally. cool. <laughs> is it something that you think about? Any of you thought about teaching classes or getting 
I mean, I guess you're too busy at the moment, but you know. I teach classes in Italy. Oh, you don't? Okay. I started doing that now. I host a class once a year in Italy where my husband is from. And we teach how to do stone painting, different malachites and marbles. And my goal going in the future is I would like to host more classes in Italy. I'm very fond of Italy for the craft Mm -hmm. and things like that. But I don't want it to be just me teaching the class. I want Chris and Luther to come. I call it adult summer camp. Uh, And you sign up for adult (laughs) summer camp and we do a little upholstery in the morning and then we go have a delicious dinner with the nonas and, you know, that's, (laughs) but I'm thinking of, you know, doing that. I think it's very important. Something Chris had uh, and and Michael about the content on your website. And that's something that I highly recommend for upholsters to definitely work on a website. Mm-hmm. That if you can take some pictures of some two or three of your your models, we we have a showroom with hundreds of models, mm-hmm. but between here and Deer Park, but we we offer at least a hundred of them on our website. We're trying to expand that. Absolutely, the content. Chris has resources on his website. I also think we've got an obligation in doing work that is not exactly essential. I mean, Luther a little bit more than. And Caroline and I, you know, I mean, it's we're really in in a business that is not necessary. So I feel like as these artisans, we sort of have an obligation, or at least for me, I've just got a huge interest in just being of service to the community as much as I can to just, this is who I am. I'm the floor guy. And however I can help you, I'd like to do it. You know, to answer your last question, my approach is is more esoteric. I have been working on a book of sorts and oh, great. I've had people approach me, oh, you should do some sort of a master class. I don't know if you've seen that, those mm-hmm. videos they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I like those videos and I, I watch them when I'm traveling sometimes. But the one that I think I learned the most from was from the FBI negotiator guy. And it's got nothing to do do with, with with what I do. I mean, maybe a little bit with, with making a deal, making contracts. But I was, was going to say, yeah, with the clients and stuff. Yeah, maybe. Um, but it was just it was just inspiring and fascinating, and I felt like right. I learned so much about that. You know, I'm also connected to Italy, but my approach is different. I go there with my son every year for about three weeks, and I walk around looking for new or really old floor patterns and photographing mm-hmm. them, and just getting out and to look at different palazzos. And yeah, the then I get in a, Italy. I get a kick out of how this one palazzo that I found in Palermo is now in Larchmont, you know, two years later. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, so my approach to teaching is more sort of about just like a lifestyle, I guess, and trying to talk about finding yourself. And I mean, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old and I work with my body. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be rolling around in the floor doing this. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. So it's just you just follow. You look pretty words. good, Chris. I think you got a few more years. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. We want to take your master class. Just just yeah. keep going. Yeah. Keep going. We're all gonna sign up. Yeah. Terrific. I, I agree with Chris too. I think part of the teaching is also some things that are done after hours. Like for example, I'll see you know, I'll stay a couple of um on Fridays with maybe a drink or two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> talking to Why some not? of the you know the guys that stay after and we start you know we'll start talking and then I'll just start looking at something and I say hey you know I think we should do something different with this chair you know and then from there like this thing blossoms where we're talking about oh how this chair is too low or this we should fix this and you know this is totally unbeknownst to the designer and the decorator but we're talking about things and I also like to talk about 
how the businesses run a little bit too. So they have an understanding of where I'm coming from and they kind of see the bigger picture that we're trying to do here. Or it's not just making furniture, but, you know, enriching people's lives and having them sit in comfort and luxury. And they take that problem solving quite seriously when they see that my dad's running around, I'm running around, we're working on so many projects at the same time. It's, it's very important. And I think, like Chris said, it's outside of the technical part. It's more right. of the business and the philosophical part of it. Right. And, and right. intuitive and something that may be a little bit hard to teach other than the way in which you're doing it when people aren't really realizing that they're being taught, possibly. Right. Because it's an, what you could do, all of you, is artistic as well. There's no formula. I mean, you can put some diagrams and, and, and things on your website of designs that would work for people, but still, the colors, all, all of that, what you do is real artistry. And that's, I just want it to be more valued in this country, that what, what you guys do. So, and that we have young people coming along who are excited to work with you or learn your skills. And I think it's so important. Yeah, I think a, a big opportunity was lost during COVID to really kind of come back to handwork and artists and work. Things went fully online. I don't think, I think once things reopened, there was a real opportunity to say, hey, you know, not everyone is a financier or people were more concerned with putting money in Robinhood and seeing right. if they could make a lot of money real fast, right. but it doesn't work that way, you know? Right, it's, right. But um, I think that was an, a lost opportunity, but I'm still optimistic. We have a lot of for the first time ever, like I'm older than a lot of the guys and girls here. So um, th there is a, a new generation cropping up, but it's very fragile, just like they could start their own thing. They could go work for someone else. So, you know, it's all about the culture and, and trying to keep everyone happy and together. And like you said earlier, give them a career that they don't have to worry about whether an income is stable or not. Well, this has been so fascinating. So I want to thank my wonderful guests today, Caroline Lizarraga. Thank you, Michael. Chris Pearson and Luther Quintana. And thank, thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time. Hold up. 